This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is success in marriage and dating. In the first half, Jason S. Carroll shares his address, As I Have Loved You, Agency-Based Love in Dating and Marriage. Then in the second half, Hugh W. Pinnock speaks on 10 Keys to Successful Dating and Marriage Relationships. When I first was invited to give a devotional address, I was initially assigned the devotional during the week of Valentine's Day back in February. While I'm sure that the selection of this date was simply a practical matter of arranging the schedule, for someone who spent the last decade teaching the marriage prep classes here on campus, I felt a certain amount of pressure to tie my remarks into a Valentine's Day theme. Plus, one of my most memorable experiences with a BYU devotion happened many years ago when Elder Jeffrey R. Holland spoke during Valentine's Week, and he talked about the understanding of the true nature of love in dating and marriage relationships. So I figured he would be a good role model for me to follow. However, as final scheduling was put into place, I was asked to move to this devotional slot during the first week of April. When this happened, I wondered if I should perhaps change the focus of my remarks. But seeing as how the only holiday I can tie into for this week is April Fool's Day, I figured I'd stick with my plans. Although I'm sure there are some of you in attendance that have had some dating experiences that you would say would fit an April Fool's Day theme quite well. I should note as I get started that while I would like to talk about how each of us can more fully emulate the Savior's example of agency-based love in our current or future dating and marriage relationships, I believe that the principles I will discuss are applicable to a wide range of other relationships as well, including friendships, parenting, and other family relationships. I should also note that while I will share some insights with you from my studies as a marriage researcher over the years, the truest and most transformative lessons I've ever had on the subject of love I've learned from my dear wife, Stephanie. Indeed, the testimony of marriage that I have been privileged to share with the students on this campus for nearly 20 years stems primarily from the beauty of marriage that I experience with her every day. Stephanie and I will celebrate the 30th anniversary of our first date in the coming weeks, and I am grateful every day for the blessing she is in my life. I'm also grateful that all of my children could be here today, including my new daughter-in-law. I love each of them dearly, and my remarks today are as much for them as they are for anyone. But they will likely just roll their eyes and tell you that they've heard it all before. For my remarks today, I'd like to address three questions about love. The first question is, how important is love? And in particular, to our emphasis today, how important is love in dating and marriage? On the surface, this question sounds like one of those questions in Sunday school classes that are so obvious that no one wants to answer them. Almost everyone instinctively answers this question by saying that, of course, love is very important to successful couple relationships. In fact, in our culture today, many would say that love is the only true reason for a couple to come together and stay together in marriage. However, while affirming the importance of love in dating and marriage relationships appears obvious and self-evident, such an answer assumes that we have a consensus about what the word love means. In romantic relationships, we often say that someone is in love. But again, what exactly does that mean? 
Part of the complexity of understanding love comes from the fact that we use the term in very diverse and inconsistent ways. We may use the term love to describe our relationship to our fiancé or spouse, but we also say that we love double fudge ice cream. Clearly we don't mean the same thing, or at least I really hope we don't mean the same thing. But being explicit about our definitions of love is much more than a semantic exercise. In fact, different conceptions of love are often at the root of the different trajectories we see in couple relationships, for better or for worse. As we ponder on the importance of love, it is instructive to consider the following excerpt from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. In this classic apologetic novel, we follow the correspondence between two devils. The first, Uncle Screwtape, is a master devil, and the second, Wormwood, is his nephew and is an apprentice devil still learning the trade. One area of training discussed involves how to ruin marriages. Uncle Screwtape admonishes young nephew Wormwood that, quote, humans can be made to infer the false belief that the blend of affection, fear, and desire, which they call being in love, is the only thing that makes marriage either happy or holy. Unquote. Uncle Screwtape explains that this form of deception keeps men and women from recognizing the deeper nature and purposes of their current or future marriages, which he describes as, quote, the intention of loyalty to a partnership for mutual help for the preservation of chastity and for the transmission of life." Unquote. Uncle Screwtape's tactic of leading people to believe that marriage should be based on the emotional state of being in love and primarily aimed at creating personal happiness seems to be particularly effective in our broader culture today. Reflecting the individualistic, consumer-driven, soulmate-searching trends of our day, the dominant story of marriage in our wider culture is the story of falling in love and finding personal fulfillment in a love relationship. As a result, many young adults, and some not-so-young adults, struggle in their relationships as they primarily think of love as an intense feeling or state of being that they cannot quite explain, but they're sure they'll know it when they see it. And they often struggle to know if their current relationship has enough of it. In some cases, individuals fear to commit to what appear to be very promising relationships out of concern that they're not in love enough. And far too often, other couples, feeling very much in love, begin marriages with hopes of achieving a happy marriage, only to see those dreams end in disappointment. Now, let's pause for a moment here. My experience tells me that this is where I may be starting to lose some of you. We seldom question this culturally dictated story of marriage or the idea that the feeling of love is the primary factor that makes marriage work. So some of you are probably thinking, but isn't being in love an important part of a successful marriage? Others of you may even be wondering, is he suggesting we shouldn't want to be happy in our marriages? My response to these reactions is that of course love and happiness matter, but while feelings of love and happiness are indeed present in good marriages, they are best understood as the fruits of those relationships, not necessarily the roots. Properly understood, love is indeed a key part of lasting marriage. But improper understandings of love, which unfortunately are common in our culture today, 
are responsible for many of the struggles some individuals and couples have in dating, courtship, and marriage. In short, what I am suggesting is that our culture today deeply values the fruits of good marriage, such as love and happiness. But we are increasingly disconnecting these fruits from the true roots that make them possible. Loving and lasting marriages are true partnerships in which spouses are devoted to creating a shared life together that is larger than the emotional payoff of the marriage. And this truth deepens even further when spouses form a covenant relationship dedicated to shared discipleship and the formation of an eternal family. This view of marriage gives us more than feelings of happiness. It helps make our lives rich and meaningful. So instead of discarding current views of love altogether, I'm suggesting that we will all benefit from broadening and deepening our thinking about love and what a good marriage is, and most importantly, how such relationships come to be. Our understandings of a good marriage should include feelings of love and happiness, but we need to make sure that we also emphasize the far richer and more enduring aspects of relationships, which, paradoxically, make the very happiness we hope for all the more possible to achieve. That brings us to our next question. What, then, is the proper view of love? How do we avoid falling into Screwtape's trap in our own current or future dating and marriage relationships? How can we assure ourselves of having the deeper, fuller foundations of love in our relationships? As with all meaningful questions in life, the answer is found in emulating the example of our Savior Jesus Christ. In fact, emulating Him in how we love was one of the Savior's final instructions to His disciples when He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. That is how Christ asks us to love. How can we come to love as the Savior loves? That, my dear friends, is one of the very few questions in life we truly need to answer. Perhaps the central message I wish to convey in my remarks today, particularly to my young friends here, is that emulating the Savior and following His injunction to love as He loves involves embracing an agency-based view of love. As Elder Lynn G. Robbins in his book Love is a Choice points out, because love is as much a verb as it is a noun, the phrase, I love you, is as much a promise of behavior and commitment as it is an expression of feeling. In both his example and teachings, the Savior conveyed that love is expressed in multiple ways within relationships. When pronouncing the first of all commandments, Jesus said, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. In modern-day Revelation, we see that the word love appears five times in the proclamation on the family. Each time the word is linked with action words such as to love and care or to love and serve. Thus, the language of the Lord suggests that love falls within the scope of our agency. Love is something we do, something we can control, and ultimately something we can choose. If not, God could not command us to love one another. It bears mentioning that a second witness for the value of an agency-based approach to love in marriage and family relationships is found in the relationship sciences. 
Family researchers have long recognized that there are different types of love and that some types or approaches to love are better than others in forming and maintaining strong relationships. Dr. Patricia Noller, a leading family psychologist from Australia, reviewed dozens of studies and concluded that strong and healthy family relationships are based in what she calls mature love. Mature love, she concludes, is made up of three interconnected dimensions. An emotional dimension, consisting of our feelings and emotions. A cognitive dimension, made up of our attitudes, priorities, and choices. And a behavioral dimension, consisting of our actions and behaviors. This is contrasted with what she calls immature love, which primarily emphasizes the emotional dimension alone and makes the practice of loving choices and behaviors conditional and contingent upon the emotional state of the relationship. Dr. Noller and other experts emphasize that these distinctions are important because the emotional aspect of love, though needed and important, is often the most unstable dimension in relationships. Emotions by their nature can ebb and flow and change with the experiences of life. Our priorities, choices, and behaviors, on the other hand, can be intentional, stable, and consistent. Additionally, when we experience a drop in the emotional feelings in a romantic relationship, a mature view of love recognizes that we can continue to choose to love our partner and to act in loving ways that will foster a healing and restoring of our feelings of love. Thus, both the teachings of Scripture and the findings from relationship research teach us that loving and lasting marriages are not as much a matter of couples falling in love as it is an agency-based pattern of couples choosing in love, doing in love, and growing in love in their relationships. My final question moves us to application. So how can we use an agency-based approach to love to actually create and produce love in our relationships? The answers to this question point us to the true roots of marriage, which individuals and couples can foster with their intentional choices and actions. Allow me to share five principles for creating love in our relationships. Principle number one, thoughtful service produces love. When I counsel with individuals or couples wondering if they are in love enough in their dating relationships, I encourage them to evaluate the amount of loving behaviors in their relationship. How we feel may be uncertain or confusing at times, but how we treat others and how we are treated in relationships is much more certain. Each of us will benefit from deepening our commitment to engaging in regular service in our marriage and family relationships. The value of loving behaviors is particularly important during times of differences and disagreement in a couple's relationship. For too many couples, disagreements lead to hurt feelings, which are then used to justify the withholding of needed loving behaviors and actions. One of the repeated lessons my students have heard from me over the years is the statement, in relationships, differences are not problems, they are opportunities. This is because differences invite each of us to see our partner for who they really are and to be responsive to his or her needs. This provides each of us a chance to show a truly unique form of other-centeredness, which help others feel valued and loved. 
I think this is what President Gordon B. Hinckley wanted us to know when he said, quote, true love is not so much a matter of romance as it is a matter of anxious concern for the well-being of one's companion, unquote. Principle number two, commitment produces love. One of the most common myths I hear when it comes to dating is when someone states, when I find a really good relationship, I'm going to commit to it. The reason why this is a myth is that really good relationships do not exist without commitment. Commitment is one of the fundamental parts of creating an enduring environment of love in a relationship. Yes, it is true, thank goodness, that in dating, commitment should come in a sequence of progressive steps and stages, not all at once. But in time, only complete devotion between two people can foster a long-term view of the relationship that will ultimately justify the day-to-day investments that are needed to create a really good relationship. Without proper commitment at the proper time, dating relationships languish in a wait-and-see pattern that leads one or both partners to hold back rather than deeply invest. Unfortunately, lopsided or asymmetrical commitment in dating relationships, where one partner is deeply committed but the other is not, has become an epidemic in our culture today. At its core, commitment is a choice that is manifest in our repeated behaviors, particularly in behaviors involving personal sacrifice. In his book, Covenant Hearts, Elder Bruce C. Hafen compares the parable of the Good Shepherd in the New Testament to the marriage covenant, emphasizing that this passage of Scripture may be our best description of the nature of the commitment the Lord intends for us to have in our marriages. In particular, he contrasts the devotion of the Good Shepherd who giveth his life for the sheep versus the self-interested motivations of the hireling who leaveth and fleeth when a wolf threatens the sheep. Reflecting on this teaching has been truly transformative for me in my own marriage. On a number of occasions, particularly at times of struggle, disagreement, or when I am wallowing in self-justifying behavior, I have had the question come to my mind, are you being a shepherd or a hireling? And if I am humble enough, I admit that I am acting like a hireling, and my spouse and my marriage deserve more. And in over 25 years of marriage now, I have had a number of times when my sweet wife has truly been my shepherd, when it has been my wolf that comes, and she has loved me through my struggles, and I have tried to do the same for her. And I have seen how such shared experiences with struggle, trial, and growth have deepened our love and appreciation for each other in ways we didn't even know were possible in our dating and courtship years. Principle number three, equal partnership produces love. In my marriage preparation and now eternal family courses over the years, I have taught my students that the most important principle they can use is their guide for making wise dating decisions and fostering a future-lasting marriage is the doctrine of equal partnership. I truly believe this. President Gordon B. Hinckley taught, In the marriage companionship, there is neither inferiority nor superiority. The woman does not walk ahead of the man, neither does the man walk ahead of the woman. They walk side by side as a son and daughter of God on an eternal journey, unquote. 
Within this vision of equal partnership, the most important questions to ask engaging the marriage worthiness of a dating relationship is, do we see and treat each other as equal partners? Do we listen to each other? Are we respectful of one another's opinions, even when we disagree? Do we make decisions together? In evaluating a dating relationship, if your answers to these questions are yes, then you have a good one. At its core, equal partnership is about embracing interdependence and learning to make important life decisions together. Principle number four, practicing virtues produces love. In his paradigm-shifting book, Beyond the Myth of Marital Happiness, Dr. Blaine Fowers observes what I believe to be one of the most important truisms of marriage. He states, quote, I have become convinced that strong marriages are built on the virtues or character strengths of the spouses. In other words, the best way to have a good marriage is to be a good person, unquote. Marriages are fuller and more resilient as spouses strive to cultivate virtues such as compassion, self-restraint, friendship, generosity, and forgiveness. These virtues can be developed if we foster them with appropriate care and attention and pray for a fuller measure of them through the endowing power of the Savior's atonement. As spouses, we stand on sacred ground with how we respond and react to the shortcomings and imperfections of our spouse, and they in turn to ours. There is something very powerful when spouses are each other's strongest supporters, when spouses rally to each other's side rather than turning away, who encourage rather than criticize, who see the best in each other rather than the worst, and who lift each other up rather than push each other down. Principle number five, Sincere discipleship produces love. Above all other things, the primary action each of us must do to create love in our relationships is to commit to the daily patterns of sincere discipleship of our Savior Jesus Christ. As we noted earlier, as I have loved you is how Christ invites us to love. This invitation presupposes that each of us has felt and is aware of the Lord's love in our own life so that we may reflect that love towards others. I share with you my witness of the Lord's perfect love for you and how much He desires for you to experience His love in personal ways in your own life. I have experienced this deeply in my own life, and I know His love is both infinite and intimate, and He knows and cares for each of you. There are two primary ways for each of us to more fully experience Christ's love, to pray and to follow. First, pray for it. The prophet Mormon pleads with us to pray with all the energy of our hearts that we may be filled with this love. In addition to our personal prayers, there is something very powerful when spouses pray with each other and for each other. It opens up heaven's blessings to allow them to see their spouse as God does, and this is the essence of charity. And second, follow. Follow the Savior Jesus Christ. In closing, permit me to return to Elder Holland's devotional remarks one last time. Elder Holland commends to each of us the only true pattern for securing enduring love in our dating and marriage relationships. He said, quote, 
You want capability, safety, and security in dating and romance and married life and eternity? Be a true disciple of Jesus. Be a genuine, committed, word and deed Latter-day Saint. Believe that your faith has everything to do with your romance, because it does. You separate dating from discipleship at your peril. Or to phrase that more positively, Jesus Christ, the light of the world, is the only lamp by which you can successfully see the path of love and happiness for you and your sweetheart. Unquote. I add my simple testimony to the truthfulness of this divine pattern as well. And I do so in the sacred name of Him who can endow each of us with the fullness of love we desire in our marriage and family relationships, even Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is success in marriage and dating. We've just heard from Jason S. Carroll. After the break, we'll return with Hugh W. Pinnock for 10 Keys to Successful Dating and Marriage Relationships. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is success in marriage and dating. Next is Hugh W. Pinnock, member of the First Quorum of Seventy of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the time of this address, titled, Ten Keys to Successful Dating and Marriage Relationships. There is a tendency in life, brothers and sisters, to simplify problems and complicate solutions. Many challenges, however, are very complex. But I have learned when we utilize the teachings of the Master, the solution to even the most difficult of life's challenges are usually basic. Several years ago, while visiting in Florida, I talked with Frank Shorter a world-class marathon athlete. He won the marathon in the 1972 Olympics, placed second in 1976, has won literally hundreds of long-distance races. As we talked about his training schedule, I learned that he has dedicated a great part of his life to succeed in that impressive area of athletics. He knows exactly what foods to eat, how many miles to run each day, which incidentally is about 20, the frame of mind he needs to have if he expects to be victorious, and a number of other characteristics relating to success in his chosen field. Well, while thinking of Frank Shorter and his goals and others who have succeeded in their chosen line of work or hobby or profession, I have asked myself, why couldn't more of our husbands and wives have the same type of dedication to a successful marriage? as have renowned athletes and physicians, educators and governmental leaders as they excel in their professions. Tonight I shall not address the mate selection process except to say three things. One, obedience, brothers and sisters, is the cornerstone of happiness. A boyfriend or a girlfriend that does not have a wholesome respect for regulation during the dating process will often continue to break the rules after the word yes at the altar is spoken. Seek out those 
that are willing to live the rules. Because if not, we will spend time with you in offices in whichever ward or stake you live, attempting to work out the difficulties that will surely come. Second, there are not to be sexual experiences before marriage. Temporary pleasure in the back seat of an automobile is an incredibly high price to pay for heartache, self-doubt, and guilt, with always the question gnawing at one's spirit, is it true love that I feel or some sort of hormonal substitute? One of the most difficult characteristics that befall those that participate when they should not is a counterfeiting procedure begins that sometimes cannot be refined out of one's procedures. Don't let it be part of yours. Three, the realization that we better marry the person that has the built-in characteristics we desire because marriage is not a place where we will be able to change them or to fit them into the mold of whom we want. It must happen before and then grow and progress together. Brethren and sisters, I know of nothing worthwhile in life that comes easy. However, nothing in life is as valuable as a strong marriage and a secure family. I am speaking to all who want their future marriage to succeed. My comments are not for anyone looking for simple ideas or anyone who would be satisfied merely to tolerate an uncomfortable arrangement. Every strong marriage is severely tested. Husbands and wives who encounter and surmount suffering, pain, misunderstanding, and temptation can enjoy a marriage that is beautiful and eternal. There's a principle that needs to be understood, and let me take just a moment to explain it to you. Many marriage experts who write articles are failures in their own marriages or who have never married. Unfortunately, many of the books on how to have a successful marriage are less than helpful to Latter-day Saints. Our marriages and families are built upon heavenly concepts and principles and not upon worldly ideas or solutions. I pray that I may be in the Spirit this evening as I communicate with you about marriage. Consider just two concepts that we have that the world does not understand. One is the principle of eternal marriage itself, where we are able to look beyond the problems of today and this evening and tomorrow into a life beyond death, where as a family we will dwell forever together. Second, the world does not understand spirituality or the fact that we can receive personal revelations that will assist us in any of the challenges that will come our way. Well, the next idea I suggest is fundamental. We must bring, brothers and sisters, the Savior and his teachings into our homes and hearts. To really succeed, your eternal marriage must be Christ-centered. Let me tell you an experience I had several years ago. I was sitting in my office. I heard a commotion out in the reception area. 
my secretary picked up the telephone and buzzed me. She said, there's a couple here, Elder Pinnock, that uh, uh, you have been assigned to talk with. And I could see she was very nervous, and I said, we'll have them in. A man and woman came in my office. Her face was tear-stained. He began pounding on my desk. Tell her I have the priesthood and she's to do what I tell her to do. <laughs> the first thing I said is stop pounding on my desk. <laughs> the second thing I said is, brother, you do not have the priesthood. Oh, yes, I do in the Kearns 27th Ward. I was given the priesthood last June or whatever it was. And I said, you don't have the priesthood. And turned and behind me, my scriptures lay. I took the triple combination and turned quickly to the 121st section. We could begin in a number of places, but brothers and sisters, let's begin with the 36th verse. That the rights of the priesthood are inseparably connected with the powers of heaven and that the powers of heaven cannot be controlled nor handled only upon the principles of righteousness. That they may be conferred upon us, it is true. But when we undertake to cover our sins or to gratify our pride, our vain ambition, or to exercise control or dominion or compulsion upon the souls of the children of men in any degree of unrighteousness, behold, the heavens withdraw themselves and the Spirit of the Lord is grieved. And when it is withdrawn, amen to the priesthood or the authority of that man. And at that time, that good sister smiled briefly. <laughs> I said, you understand that you don't have the priesthood. He said, I didn't understand that. And then I said, let's begin reading the 41st verse. No power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood or any other position or title, I might add. Only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned, by kindness and pure knowledge. And about this time their hands joined as I read the next several verses, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy, and without guile. Jumping to the 45th verse, let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. Well, he was listening now, and we talked for the next few minutes about the importance of meekness and patience and love unfeigned. Well, as they walked out, they walked out arm in arm, hopefully after having learned a great lesson in life, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the priesthood that so many of us in this room bear can only be maintained and handled upon those principles. Just as a building must have a strong foundation, as does this 
magnificent structure. A family needs the sure foundation of the Savior and his teachings. We are a spiritual people, believing in spiritual principles that, first and foremost, we are to use the Spirit in solving problems and receiving revelations that will guide our feet. Obviously, this means to live righteous lives, to pray often, and to be kind one to another. Next, do not feel that an intense disagreement in your dating procedure or eventually in your marriage indicates that it cannot succeed. If we are to really communicate, we must be honest when we disagree. We must express hurts and let our feelings show. We can do this without becoming angry or inconsiderate. People who keep things bottled up inside are candidates for a variety of illnesses. But even more serious, that approach does not solve problems. Serious disagreements between partners does not mean the two are becoming allergic to one another or that the situation is hopeless. It merely means that they are human and that they are not yet perfect individuals. If we can just acknowledge our differences in mature ways, then we will realize that our dating procedure is okay or that our marriages eventually will be all right. Often what happens is we have simply failed to communicate. And differences can be worked out without jeopardizing a relationship. As we communicate, brothers and sisters, may I say this quickly, let us first communicate about feelings, those throbbings from within, and then we can be concerned with the historical aspects of communication, where we have been and those that we have seen. But let us communicate our feelings first. And if something just doesn't feel quite right, leaves you with kind of that uncomfortable feeling that needs to be said to your date or to your husband or wife. Third, never make your date or mate the object of jokes either in private or in public. Partners who poke fun at one another may think of it as good-natured humor. It is not. It is degrading and dangerous. To make a joke about private things a husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend does is a form of ridicule and a way of putting him or her down. Too often the laughter conceals a spirit of malice or anger that causes hurt feelings and fractures in that delicate substance we define as spirit. Couples who respect each other do not resort to such procedure. Next, both during the dating period and after marriage, do not smother one another with excessive restrictions. Remember a kind and loving father. And I guess it was a hundred years ago today that we were sitting around talking about that council in heaven and all of those things that had happened thousands of years before. And we were getting ready to come here. And as we looked to father, we could see the trust in his eyes. And we knew that we would be operational here upon the earth in a great environment of freedom then why do we try to take sometimes that freedom away from those we love so much? 
a loving wife of many years, shared with me one of the secrets of her beautiful marriage. She told me it is my duty to maintain an atmosphere in our home in which my husband can reach his full potential. As you know, he's a busy businessman, a bishop and father. In turn, he helps me reach my potential. With her encouragement, he was an outstanding bishop. She later served as a counselor in two auxiliary presidencies. She had a little place in their home where she could sew and where she painted lovely paintings and wrote beautiful poetry. He felt comfortable in going fishing and lowering his golf score and doing some painting himself and growing in ways that interested him. Neither of these marriage partners was being smothered by a selfish mate. Both respected the other's needs and goals. And as we think about that eventual responsibility that you will have of raising children, keep that concept in mind. If we will give them gobs of freedom almost beyond logic sometimes, they will grow in precious ways that will give them the confidence to do what needs to be done. The most fulfilling of all marriages that I have observed seem to be those in which the husband and wife together commit their love to the Savior's keeping and to each other. They are interested in one another and yet set each other free to grow and mature, never free to flirt, but free to take on new challenges and to pursue new interests. Jealousy is a subtle form of bondage and is the most smothering of human passions. Dating couples or husband and wives who fear the loss of a partner's love weaken their relationship by holding on too tightly. A husband who thinks to himself, I won't let her out of my sight, is actually expressing a fear that might push her away. We must allow each other plenty of room for personal growth and expression. When both partners are able to develop their talents and interests, the marriage is less likely to suffer from boredom and narrowness. Fifth, compliment each other sincerely and often, just as you do or will do during the dating period. A middle-aged wife once told me, somebody has to keep my husband humble. He gets so much attention from others that he needs to be brought down a peg or two. He gets too big for his britches. How sad. Every husband needs a wife that will build him up. Every wife needs a husband to honor and to respect her. Building each other with sincere compliments is never a sign of weakness. It is the right thing to do. Anyone that can contemplate kneeling at an altar, participating in an eternal ordinance, or those that have, can certainly find lovely things to say about their partner. So often in those stressful circumstances where divorce has occurred, I will hear comments such as this from a divorced man or woman. John has been gone now for three years. How I wish he would come back. The loneliness is unbearable. I neglected to tell him or her so many things. Oh, if only I had let her or him know how good she or he was in so many ways. What a fool I was. 
I could never learn to compliment and to build. I was always pointing out her mistakes or his mistakes. I see how some husbands and wives treat each other. A young divorced lady said to me, so coldly and with such indifference I want to scream at them to wake them up before it's too late. I want to tell them to quit their sarcasm and instead to encourage each other. And remember this, dear friends, that that is part of the responsibility of dating, to handle that precious relationship as if it is fragile, because it is. We all tend to become the persons described in the compliments that our spouses and friends pay us. We will do almost anything to live up to the compliments and encouragements of a boyfriend or girlfriend or proud wife or husband. Next, in dating or in marriage, never resort to the silent treatment. Always be open and straightforward with each other. Too often we may respond to tensions by clamming up or by taking a walk. A young wife from the southwest corner of Salt Lake County asked me to talk with her husband. All he does is clam up when we disagree. He won't communicate. He just walks out the door. Think of this maturity level. When he cools down, he comes home, but he is like ice until I make up with him. He can go on for days or even a week or two without saying a word. Well, I have learned that we are wrong even to say to our mate, just leave me alone. I'm going through a rough time. Let me work it out by myself. I just don't want to be around anybody right now. That not only is unfair and a genuine insult, but it is stupid. What is marriage if it is not sharing and helping one another through crises? We will hear all of the excuses. It's that time. I'm not feeling well. Things are tough at the office. I've had a tough day at class. I lost a big case. My nerves are bad. Things are tough over to the ward. But none of these excuses give the moral right to shut out someone who loves you. Keep the door to your heart open. The times when we shut others out often are the times when we need their help the most. Of course we need times of privacy and to think alone. Of course we need time to pray and to meditate. And we should understand and respect this need in others. However, we should never be inconsiderate or inappreciative of a concerned husband or wife who is trying to help at a time of trouble or discouragement. Next, resolve when necessary to say, Hey, honey, I'm sorry, and really mean it. Contrary to a popular saying, love in part means learning how to say, I'm sorry, sweetheart. So often when we make mistakes, sometimes innocently, damage has been done and an apology is in order. Along with learning how to say, I'm sorry, husbands and wives must learn to say, I forgive. Jesus taught that to be forgiven by our Heavenly Father depends in part and in great part on our ability to forgive those that have trespassed against us, even 
when cheating has occurred. We must be willing, under most circumstances, to accept their true repentance. Some of the strongest marriages of which I am aware have been between partners who could say, I am sorry, and who forgive. In addition to saying they are sorry and really meaning it, husbands and wives must avoid bringing up the past. Thousands of marriages have survived the most critical problems and have been successful only because godly sorrow for sin was followed by Christ-like forgiveness. A woman was referred to my office for a blessing for the restoration of her health. She had been ill for seven years. She had had exploratory surgery three times in the hospital a number of times, had switched doctors more often than annually, and I declined to give her a blessing when the Spirit said there was nothing wrong physically. And brothers and sisters, you can imagine what an awkward position I found myself in having to say no. She said, What do you mean? As we talked, she mentioned that several years earlier, during a very difficult time in her life, her husband had not given her the attention that she needed, and he was sitting next to her. She had not been pleased with his behavior and had carried with her a scarred heart. Emotions that had been disrupted and confused, and she was bitter. I said, When did this happen? She said, Seven years ago. Now wait just a minute, Elder Pinnock. You don't mean to tell me that I've been sick for seven years because I can't forgive my husband, and there he sat. I said, I would be happy to give you a blessing for what is wrong. Well, she was there. The moment was awkward. She said, All right, go ahead. I placed my hands upon her head and gave her a blessing that she could love and forgive. At that time, not sure it was her husband, but it seemed to be. As we walked the few steps to my door, I pointed to the door and said, That door will always be open for you. And then a half and then sort of uncomfortably left. Well, about ten days later, the telephone rang. Is that offer still good to come and see you? I said, Yes. She came in. You mean to tell me that the reason I've been sick for so many years is because I can't forgive my husband and the way he treated me seven or eight years ago? And I said, Yes. I've thought a great deal about it since then. I believe that's your problem. Well, we talked for almost an hour. As she stood up to leave, I pointed the door again and said, The door is always open. The phone rang several weeks later. May I come and talk with you, Elder Pinnock? I said, Certainly. She walked in a changed woman. She said, I haven't felt this good for years. Can't remember having ever felt as good as I feel now, and I love my husband so much. Well, think about it. Think about it. Think about it. Next, remember to never turn to a third party in time of marital trouble, except to your bishop or branch president. In sensitive and inspired ways, he will direct you to a competent counselor, if that is what is needed. Someone is always ready and eager to console a hurting wife or husband. 
And when marriage partners have no one to talk with at home, unfortunately, too many seek a friend elsewhere. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is where almost all adultery has its origin. It can happen in the neighborhood, in a ward choir, at the office, or anywhere else. Secret affairs begin innocently enough just by talking about mutual hurts. But then comes a dependency period that too often ends in transferring loyalty and affection, followed by adultery. Never, ever, never, ever confide your marriage troubles to a third party. No, not even to your closest friend. He or she may be the first to tell your troubles to another, becoming the one to hurt you most severely. Lean on the Savior and rely upon your bishop and your stake president. Remember that, because as the years quickly come and go, there will be stressful times when you will need to talk to someone. Remember who. This system which the Lord has given us is simple, but it works so well. Ninth, have clean, wholesome fun during your dating years and retain the same joy in marriage. God intends us to find joy in life. Man is that he might have joy. Most marriages begin with joy, and those that succeed retain it. Last Thanksgiving, we went up to Bear Lake. We have a little farm home there. My wife and I began a tickling contest. I am a world-class tickler. I am one of the great ticklers that's ever lived. Well, as we were laughing and giggling and rolling around on the floor, in came the children. They couldn't believe what they were seeing. Soon they joined in, and we had a great time. A microscopic bit of sadness attended that experience last Thanksgiving because I thought to myself, why haven't I introduced that type of joy into our home even more? And hopefully our home has been more joy-filled since then. When a marriage loses its happiness, it becomes weak and vulnerable. Find a happy home, and you will find a joyful couple at the helm. Husband and wives who no longer laugh and play together are losing their love for each other and their capacity to stay together. True love includes a joyful, almost childlike quality. In other words, live it up righteously. Well, it's almost time to say goodnight. Let me read to you an article that appeared in Harper's Weekly in October. It is a gloomy moment in the history of our country, not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The domestic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron sees and bubbles with uncertainty. Russia hangs as usual like a cloud dark and silent upon the horizon. It is a solemn moment. Of our troubles no man can see the end. 
Well, so much of life does not change. But let me testify to you that area of life that will never change. And that's when we live the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I look to you marvelous missionaries, and boy, do we love you. I've just come back from touring two missions. And what a great time we had together. You are embarking upon a period where you will teach true principles to people that are struggling, that are confused, that don't have any idea what to do, and you will bring them the answer. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what an honor it is to serve the Master in ways that you soon will do, and so many here of our young men and women have already done. Your futures depend on the present. Live life well today. Life passes quickly. Let us not be guilty of hoping that someday we'll become happy and contented after college or after this next semester or after the next test or after this date tonight or after the bills are paid, or after the kids are grown, or when we retire, the good will always outweigh the bad. And let me say that again. The good will always outweigh the bad. There's far more lovely, fine, honest people in this world than those that are dishonest and injurious. May we learn at your age, and at ours if we haven't, to recognize the good and to bring joy into the lives of others. May the Lord's choicest blessings be with each of us that we may do all within our power to do those things that are proper and right in our social interaction with each other as we date, that we may have, when that special sacred time comes, strong marriages, and a life filled with joy. This I pray humbly in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Success in Marriage and Dating with thoughts from Jason S. Carroll and Hugh W. Pinnock. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.